Carpe diem. Now, who knows what that means? Carpe diem. That's seize the day. Very good, Mr. Meeks. Seize the day. Why does the writer use these lines? Because he's in a hurry. No. Thanks for playing anyway. Because believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. And peruse some of the faces from the past. You've walked past them many times. I don't think you've really looked at them. Invincible, just like you feel. The world is their oyster. They believe they're destined for great things, just like many of you. Their eyes are full of hope, just like you. Did they wait till it was too late to make from their lives even one iota of what they were capable? If you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. All of us has had a teacher who moved us forward. One who just didn't educate us, they inspired us. They made us believe in who we are and why we matter. Sparked our curiosity, gave us the confidence to debate, think, write, and dive beneath the superficial. For most of high school, I slept walked through it. I did the bare minimum to get by. I was more interested in cracking up the class than cracking into books. I then met Mr. McPherson, a history teacher. One day he took me aside to tell me I'd been the subject of much debate in the teacher's room. Well, that obviously piqued my interest. But he said it wasn't that great. One half wanted to move me to a remedial school, a parking lot for those who think of school as a place to park. The other half said I had great potential if only I applied myself. Well, that year, Mr. McPherson pushed me to go beyond my comfort levels, erase boundaries, and realize that history wasn't about memorizing dates. It was about events and lies I'm internally grateful as I fell in love with learning, reading, writing, and conceptualizing. Mr. McPherson was transformative for my life. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Well, my guest today is Ken Wong, one of the most gifted educators in this country. And at Queen's University, he has inspired and educated thousands and thousands of people, both at the graduate and postgraduate level. And he recently announced his retirement from teaching. Well, I wrote a tribute to him on LinkedIn, and the outpouring of love was unlike anything I've ever witnessed. Over 52,000 views, 600 likes, and 100 comments about Ken's impact on their life. Ken, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Yeah, thank you, Tony. So, Ken, let's go back to my LinkedIn tribute. The response to heartfelt messages must have been very moving for you. <laughs> it, it was indeed. In, in fact, Chung, just, just the tribute from you alone uh, was moving. And, and uh, you know, I don't fool myself. I'm sure some of those 52,000 views were people checking in on you and who your guest was that week. But the fact that uh, 500 people endorsed it, 100 people took the time of their day to, to write a comment or two, um, it was uh, oh, truly overwhelming. It wasn't just a comment or two and a like. I mean, Ken, they talked about a moment that you you just knocked them over with wisdom or how you used an expression that they've used a hundred times afterwards. And it really made me think that the teachers that do have an ability to connect, and you know I always use head, heart, and hands, how people think and feel and ultimately do, that's among the most gifted professions in the world. Uh, well, I'd like to think so. You know, the old saying, uh, you give a man a fish, they eat for a day. Uh, you teach him to fish, they eat for a lifetime. 
a good teacher can do even more than that. You know, we can teach them how to prepare it, how to store it, how to share it. We communicate a lot more than just technical value when we do our job well. And the other thing, and we'll move on from the LinkedIn page, is what I was so surprised about is the people that commented, you wrote back with personal comments, remembering who they were. I mean, you must have taught 100,000 students over your lifetime. How can you possibly have commentary? Was it just because these 100 people stood out, or is it just you have one of these brains that somehow really puts the personality behind the people you're uh, educating? Well, you know, I I think part of it, Tony, is that I I try not to confine my teaching to the classroom. Uh, I I encourage people to come see me in my office uh, so that we can talk about things so that we can personalize the, the experience. And uh, and so, you know, in these cases, you do, of course, tend to remember those people uh, very, very well. And I should also add that, uh, you know, one of the great benefits of being a teacher is that you not only get to live your own life, you also live vicariously through the achievements of, uh, of your students. And so, uh, you know, one of my guilty pleasures is keeping track of what they're up to. So, Ken, you and I wrote a column together years ago. Uh, I certainly saw you inducted in the Marketing Hall of Legends. What I'm most impressed about with you is that not only did you have this one lane of being an extraordinary teacher, but from a business side, you did an awful lot to help define education and, and what an executive MBA would be like and how a university could go beyond the boundaries of their four walls. What created that interest with you that you just decided that I could not only take the game ball I'm given to teach, but actually can start creating the playbook in terms of how education is going to work in this country? Uh, part of it was, I think, how I was brought up. Uh, my, my parents had a massive influence on me. Uh, and so did my high school years. You know, I was, uh, uh, I was educated by Jesuits uh, and Jesuits are an unusual breed. They're kind of God SWAT team, if you think about it. And, and the thing with Jesuits is Jesuits don't commit to a, to a routine. You know, they commit to a, uh, an outcome that they want to create and then they do whatever it takes to make that happen. So, you know, you think back to the Vietnam era, uh, the Behringer brothers, the Jesuits in the States were the first to oppose the draft. Um, you're taught to be a little bit of a, a rebel, a rogue. Um, and so, in fact, uh, I think they instilled the spirit of what, what today we would call disruption. I want to move on to your background in a minute. But before I get there, I know you're also an incredible family person. Did your family ever feel jealous that you were putting so much of who you are into that classroom in terms of how also how that university was run or to find a way to, to do both? Because we always look at high achievers and, and most of them say there's no such thing as work-life balance. It's just a question of prioritizing one day to another. I, well, first of all, I would agree with people. There is no such thing as work-life balance. It's a question of what you respond to. You know, I, I don't forget about my family at the office. And when I go to my children's games or recitals, you know, I bring along my smartphone. And when they're not on stage, I'm, I'm checking emails. Uh, you can do both, but you need the support of the family. And one of the great things about any kind of accolade, including this one, is that you get a chance to say thank you to them because they, they really are the heroes here. Uh, they make it possible for us to do what we do. And in fact, uh, in, in my case, uh, they're a large part of the motivation to do what I do. Uh, I'm proud of them. I want them to be proud of me. Ken, you grew up in the 1950s, Montreal, Chinatown, child of first-generation Canadian parents, kind of a mutt background, Chinese, French, English, and Irish. Were your parents accepted back then, or was it like you're not one of any? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, I, I think I was, uh, 
I was EDI uh, before EDI became popular. It was inbred in me. My parents never complained uh, about any form of discrimination, uh, but certainly as I reflect, I'd have to be silly not to think that they encountered some. I mean, Asians were charged head taxes. Uh, Francophones in Quebec, as you know, were in many cases second-class citizens. Uh, you know, Pierre Vallier wrote that book, uh, White Niggers of North America. You know, the, the U.S. was the melting pot. We were the vertical mosaic. So sure, they, they encountered some, some difficulty. But my parents were, were never, they never acted like victims, you know? Uh, they accepted what the world was. They did the best they could. And uh, they tried to remind me of one thing. People aren't going to meet a lot of Chinese folks. And so their whole judgment of your race is going to be based on the impression you create. So I was always very conscious that I was not just representing myself and my personal brand. I was also branding the entire Chinese race. What other lessons did you get? Because I know when we've talked in the past just how important your parents' influence was on who you became in terms of an educator. So give me another life lesson that you still apply as you go forward in your life. I, I give you the biggest one. My, my parents, uh, like all parents, I think that they think their children are special. Uh, my parents thought I was special, uh, but they also was worried that, uh, as the saying goes, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. And so uh, my favorite story is my father taking two plates, a lunch plate and a dinner plate, holding them in front of me, showing me the big plate and saying, this is you. And uh, then showing me the lunch plate and saying, this is somebody else. And then covering half of the, of the dinner plate and saying, but you're only using half your potential. So who's who really got more in the game? Lesson learned and uh, also lesson learned about how to express concepts. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were all meant to shine as children do. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same as we are liberated from our own fear. Our presence automatically liberates others. Welcome back. My guest today is Ken Wong, and his passion for teaching is something that every leader... Sir, I just want to say thank you. ...every teacher, and honestly, every parent can learn from. I want to take us to another part of your childhood, and I know it'll be a tough one to talk about, but, you know, I really believe that the circumstances of your youth helped really define the character later in life. You lost your brother, you know, when he was eight years old. I guess you were around 12 at the time. How did that impact your parents, and how did that impact you? It uh, it had a huge effect on me. I mean, I, I love being a big brother. Uh, there was nothing nothing that was more fun for me, but it was devastating for my family. Uh, my mother got fragile because of it. She caught tuberculosis, uh, had to be in a sanatorium for the better part of almost two years. Um, and so my sister and I, uh, we were kind of latchkey kids, uh, but in the best kind of way, because uh, 
My dad always made himself available. We probably called him at work three, four times a day uh, just to settle the little arguments and the like. And my mother was always calling to see how we were. So we knew we were cared for. Uh, but at the same time, um, it, it kind of gave us the permission to become a little more self-reliant and uh, and know that we had a, a safety net behind us. I'm watching this special on the uh, Kennedys, the dad that had aspirations that his older son, Joe, would become the first Catholic president of the United States. And Joe, as we most of us know, died in the uh, fighting in World War II. And JFK was then crowned as the one that could carry the ball for the Kennedys. Did you find that your relationship with your dad changed that because losing your brother that they felt they was they just had to put more into you and your sister? Well, you know, I, I think when you're going from three children to two, naturally you're going to get a little more attention than you might otherwise receive. But my parents, they, they were always, always amazing. You know, I think the big change was how I looked at them uh, because I saw them cry. Uh, I, I saw the pain in their faces. I came to realize that they were human beings and, uh, human beings who cared about me and, and my, my siblings. And, and so uh, it was at that point that I really committed myself to them. I was going to make them proud. I was uh, at a minimum. I, I was not going to give them any trouble to worry about. Uh, they'd had enough misery in their life. It was my turn to return the favor to them. You know, when I do these shows, they start realizing sort of the uh, six degrees or as Mitch Joel calls the six pixels of separation. My dad worked as a butcher at Steinberg's and your dad went out to actually see Sam Steinberg, the Dave Nichols of the day. Talk to me a little bit about that meeting and how that set a completely new course in life for your family. Uh, that was a, a massive influence for a couple of reasons. So my father gets back from the war he and my mother get married. They go to New York City for a honeymoon. They come back. They have five cents to their name. He uses it to call his sister. Uh, and uh, they talk about what they're going to do going forward. My father had been working as a waiter in Chinatown. He noticed that people loved egg rolls. And so he proposes to his sister that they should set up a company making these egg rolls. Then he gets some shirt cardboard and a bunch of crayons. He dummies up a package. And he walks into Sam Steinberg's uh, office. Steinberg at this time is, is huge. He's, he's enormous, a figure in, in merchandising, retailing. And he walks in and says, uh, here's what I want to do. And he shows them the package and he talks about his vision for how big the line would be. And Steinberg, for some reason, takes pity on him, I guess, and gives him a trial. Uh, they start in one store, move to five, then ten. Um, the rest kind of is history, and we end up with Canada's largest processor of Chinese food. At the time, I think 26 items in the line, over 100 employees, uh, 50 or 60 million in sales. So as the oldest boy, I have to believe your dad was kind of thinking you would come in and take over that business. But what was it like suddenly being an, an entrepreneurial family where your dad's swagger is not is really about building something that with a sister that they're doing together versus maybe the different kind of walk when you're getting on the bus or car to head down to the restaurant to, to be a waiter? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, they were born family, but they chose to be partners in life. Uh, and they brought in their brothers and sisters into the business as well. And uh, when you're part of an entrepreneurial family, you're privy to a lot of things. I mean, I, I joke that we had uh, 365 board meetings every year. We just called it dinner. <laughs> so so you, you kind of learn your business around the dinner table. You learn the kinds of practical problems that, that people are having. And uh, 
you know, the expectations uh, for succession, uh, they weren't tied to the business. They were tied to the extended family. Uh, I, I come from a family of high achievers. We've got uh, a VP admin, a VP of finance. Uh, uh, we, we've got an Olympic athlete, uh, uh, all seams and all stripes. And, uh, you know, I, I think at, all, at that time, we weren't all told to come into the business, but we were always told that we were a family. And that we had strength from, from that, uh, from that unity. I want to talk about this, you know, and you're rolling off all of this compliments to your family, but let's talk about athletics. From what I understand, you were scouted in Montreal, which at the time really probably not where a lot of scouts went to uh, try out to become a professional baseball player. That's quite an achievement. Uh, first of all, I don't know that I was a super athlete. I think I just grew faster than everybody else. And then it caught up with me. Uh, I think at 13, I was 5'7 and 130 pounds. At uh, 17, I was 5'8 and 140 pounds. So everybody kind of caught up. But uh, I went down to the States uh, for rookie league baseball, and I discovered that uh, a good Canadian shortstop is a below-average American second baseman uh, just because of coaching and the like. So I, I realized uh, soon thereafter that I wasn't going to make it. And uh, so I had to do a career pivot. So, Ken, I want to fast track you to Harvard, but you and I have another commonality. We both decided to uh, be a dodger of the CGEP system and do a qualifying year at Carleton, where you could do it in one year versus two. You were focused on university in Canada, and you did that, but then you end up at Harvard. And I have to tell you, I'm jealous. I went to a Young Presence Organization weekend at Harvard, and I felt it was like Bagger Vance of education. I mean, the, the halls and the, the library and the grounds and the pubs around it and everything that goes with that school. So how did you make your way to, to Harvard? Uh, well, I, you know, it's it's kind of a funny story. I... I um I ran for election of the uh, student council presidency here at Queens and uh, was unsuccessful. And so in my very last year of undergrad, uh, I found myself forced to focus on academics. And I was walking down the halls one day and I came across this uh, course called Communications in Marketing. And I went to sign up for it. And the professor said, well, of course you can sign up as long as you're an MBA student. I wasn't. I was an undergrad. And so he said, well, then I'm sorry, I can't let you in. I tried as hard as I could to pitch him on why I'd be a great candidate. And he still said, I'm sorry, I just can't do it. And then as I turned to walk out, he said, uh, but if you're interested, uh, I'd be happy to supervise you in a thesis. And I turned around and I said, in all honesty, what's a thesis? <laughs> because this is a business school. You know, we don't do theses. We do projects. We do case studies. He spent 45 minutes a day with me for an entire year. Uh, he taught me the ropes. He taught me what to do, uh, how to take advantage of my skills. He was a Harvard MBA. And so I was convinced at that time I was going to be a, a, a prof. And the associate dean at uh, Queens at the time came to me and said, well, if you'd like to stick around for a year after your undergrad, you can teach and see if you really like it. And I said, well, what would I teach? And he said, well, why don't you teach stats? Because if you can teach statistics and still like teaching, you know you found your calling. So uh, I taught stats for a year and uh, applied to Stanford, Michigan, Northwestern, and Wharton. And I was about to go, and my dad pulled me aside one day and said, uh, I, I don't understand. Um, how can you teach in a business school if you've never worked outside of a business school? And so I went and spent uh, four years in Ottawa with the conference board. 
uh, researching management issues. And I came away from that with the sense that uh, I, I knew enough stats. I, I knew how to do research. What I needed to learn was how to manage people. And that was one thing that uh, the schools I had applied to, they didn't really focus on that. Harvard, Harvard focused on how to manage people. And so that became the only place I applied to. And fortunately, I got, I got in. This is Chatter That Matters. When we come back, Ken Wong discusses his thoughts on today's education system, what works, what doesn't, and how to fix it. Hi, this is Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. For the third consecutive year, J.D. Power has ranked RBC highest in client satisfaction among Canada's five big banks. These are challenging economic times. You need a bank you can trust with the realities of today and your dreams of tomorrow. Bring your ideas to RBC because they matter, and RBC will bring theirs because you matter. Ideas happen at RBC. So things are starting to go kind of full circle, and we are starting to see the rumblings now of, of marketing still being considered largely promotional, but the marketing perspective becoming more a general management perspective that is really embedded within the essence of business strategy. So it may not be practiced by somebody called a marketing manager, but it is, the, in essence, what brand management used to be. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Ken Wong. Ken's one of the most gifted educators in Canada and his work at Queen's University and his passion for those he teaches at both the undergraduate and graduate level is simply unmatched. You go to Harvard, you do exceptionally well. In fact, they want you to come back and teach there. And I mean, this is, first of all, if you're a graduate at Harvard, the network is something that you can tap into the rest of your life. If you're a professor at Harvard, it's a completely different echelon, but you turn it down. Why? Uh, well, there were three reasons. Uh, one was very altruistic. Uh, I, I am a Canadian. Uh, I'm a proud Canadian. And frankly, Canada had paid for my undergrad. Uh, and so the idea of me taking resources from this country and not paying it back in some way that just didn't seem like the, the right thing to do. More selfishly, though, I, I, uh, I wanted my family to grow up in a, a very safe and, and well-rounded environment, you know, one that had a, a global outlook. And in Canada, I think we did that better than the States uh, at that point in time. And then the most selfish reason was if I stayed at Harvard, I would teach Harvard courses Harvard's way. The Jesuit uh, came back to haunt me. Uh, I, I knew what I wanted to teach. I knew I wanted to teach it a different way. And uh, Queens was one of the few places that would let me do that. Another sort of pivot I'm trying to understand, because you've got this massive math brain. You've already had a year teaching stats. I would have thought you'd be much more of an economics professor than becoming, without question, one of the most renowned marketing professors, certainly in North America, if not around the world. So how did that come about? That Because economics and math to marketing is a very different lane. Well, to be honest with you, I almost switched out of commerce uh, to, uh, to major in economics and political science. It's easy to see why. Uh, David Dodge, you know, the governor of the Bank of Canada, that was my prof for introduction to economics. Uh, John Meisel, uh, who headed up the CRTC, uh, he was my poli-sci prof. John Deutsch, uh, the Economic Council of Canada, you know, he, he was our principal. I, I was all about it, but 
Then I took a marketing course. All of a sudden, a light went off. You know, I, I, I thought, wow, I, I get it. Uh, I actually see the world that way. This is me being me. This is me being acting naturally. The more I thought about marketing and, and how we did and what we trying to do, I saw marketing in everything in my life. Uh, dating was like moving down the sales funnel from awareness, from, you know, awareness to trial to, to adoption. And, and when you start to see the world that way, it's easy to amass those 10,000 hours of practice, you know? So it, it just became a, a part of me, a natural extension. Unpacking this knapsack, I mean, Harvard, Queens, Jesuit disruption background, now falling in love with marketing, even using it to find a way to date. How did that all come together in terms of Ken Wong as a professor? And how did that change over the decades that you taught? You know, I, I, I always believed in the end result of education. I, I just didn't always agree with how it was done. And I, I think when you think about the stage of our, that our craft was at at the time, uh, we spend a lot of time trying to codify a vocabulary so that we're all talking the same language. And it's necessary. But when you focus just on the vocabulary, all you get is memory. You don't really get an understanding of the principles behind the vocabulary, why it's important. My dad, you know, he had to leave school in grade eight to depression era baby and he never went to university, but was always curious about what did you do at university? And so every time I'd come home, he'd be waiting with an ashtray, a couple of packs of cigarettes because we all smoked then uh, and a big pot of coffee. And uh, we talked until three in the morning. And the opening question was, so uh, what have you learned since the last time you were home? And I had to take him through all of my lessons. And he would respond by saying, oh, so that's just like when I did this with the egg roll machine, or that's just like when we talked to these people. And I started to learn at that point that these concepts, they weren't just in our minds. These concepts had a physical manifestation. And if you could just bridge that gap, you could translate that knowledge into action. And, you know, this is why I've always loved your, your head, heart and hands, uh, because it really encapsulates what we're trying to do in education. You know, get in that, that head, um, show them the relevance so it captures their heart. And, you know, if they're, if they're then so moved, their hands, the behavior will follow. Ken, I want to be selfish as much as I want to learn more about you and your approach to life. The fact that I have you for this interview and there's so many people out there challenging, questioning, accepting, maybe disrupting education. I'd love you to talk a little bit about what we need to do to teach our children well going forward. And I'll just give you my biases. I really do believe that. I see education kind of stuck in time, still calendar based in the, you know, the agricultural economy, frequent work stoppages, often children held hostage in terms of labor negotiations. And yet I think, as Nelson Mandela said, that education is our most powerful weapon going forward. So I'm not a fan right now of the way we're teaching. And I love your point of view because you're right at the epicenter of it. What's working and what do we need to do to make it better? Let me cast it in a marketing light. As a teacher, I think I retail knowledge. But if you think about how we retail products as marketers, we don't retail uh, different products to different people in the same way. And yet in education, that's exactly what we do. You know, we, we have somehow defined this standard curricula that everybody needs to know to the same level, and we pitch it to them in, in the same way. 
Uh, the thing I think I, I'm, I'm most proud of at a personal level in my career uh, was our ability to to take our MBA program private, outside of government funding. Um, and I'm proud of it because number one, we had to we had to make that happen at the time when an NDP government was in power, and there were lots of charges of exclusivity. And we countered that with a a loan plan that meant you didn't have to pay your tuition until you got a job. Um, we were focused on science and technology because we realized that uh, there wasn't a lot of value t- teaching people how to make coupons and the like when uh, people didn't buy science and technology using coupons. Uh, and uh, we started to question everything we did. You know, classes were 90 minutes long. Why 90 minutes? There was no real reason for it. There's no pedagogical reason for it. Uh, we gave people tons of readings to do before every class. Why? We could have shown them a video, saved them a lot of trouble, and done some teaching in the progress. And, and so we really started to take a value-added perspective. We asked ourselves, what's the end product we're trying to create? What are we being given coming into the program, and the gap between the two, that's what we have to accomplish. And everything we did was directed at overcoming one or more of those gaps. We seem to be going completely counterintuitive to what seems to be very common sense. We're trying to create everybody equal. Uh, my nieces who live uh, came in from South Africa, and their parents are appalled at our education system. And even to the sense of track and field, they don't even measure time or how far you jump. You just get a ribbon for participation. What needs to be done? Because these kids very soon are going to be carrying on their shoulders our future and a lot of the debt that we poured at their feet. So what do we need to do to kind of have that Jesuit mentality being disruptive and, as you say, highly personalized, less rules and much more about individual adventure to our education? Well, I think it happens at two levels. I mean, first of all, there's the system, and then there's the, the teachers themselves. Um, and the teachers are vitally important. You know, uh, they are our front line, so to speak. And uh, their behavior defines the, the experience that the students tend to have. So they become critical. But as my father would say to me, how can you teach business without being in business? One might also say to teachers, how can you teach about life unless you've led a full life. And uh, we need to do more uh, to make that possible. And that brings me to the most important component. We don't have leadership right now. We don't have leadership. We don't have vision. We don't have consensus on what our education is supposed to do. You know, is it an education for life that we're creating or or is it a productive workforce? Uh, is it both? Uh, because there is a role for, for both. Uh, what is the role of the arts, the, of science? You know, we need that kind of vision so that we can then make the commitment of resources. Think about those teachers. You know, we, we pay teachers sixty to eighty thousand dollars a year. Uh, we pay truck drivers more than that. Uh, that means we place a greater value on shipping goods than we place on uh, on, on framing our, our young people's minds and, and hearts. Uh, and that's just wrong. I, I'm not saying truck drivers don't don't uh, deserve the higher pay. I'm saying the teachers are underpaid and under-resourced. Is it fair to say, though, that we're pouring so much money into bureaucracy and creating rules that if we freed up some of that money, because my belief is that the greatest teachers should be paid two or three times what they are, but we should also have a system where those that aren't capable of inspiring and educating have to 
step aside and let somebody else get that seat on the bus? Ideally, yes. I mean, it, it's uh, to be honest with you, it's part of why I'm, I'm approaching retirement. You know, it, it's time to turn over the reins to someone a little younger with a, a fresh perspective and uh, and some new ideas. Some people who grew up with the technology and know how to use it, uh, what to expect from it. You know, so in that regard, you're absolutely right. And when it comes to uh, the administration, the administration is too much about rules. You know, you have to do this. You have to do that. You have to do it this way. When you think about it, no one is in a better position than a teacher to know what works with their class. No one knows the, the environment that they're in, uh, the family pressures they're facing at home. Um, you know, when we're teaching, we're not just teaching technical knowledge, we're teaching values. We're teaching how to think about the world and how to view it. We may not intend to, but, but it, it's how we do it. And uh, when we make people comply with rules, you have to do this, you have to teach math this way. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was uh, a good math student. My sister was an honors math student. It runs in the family. When I saw the new math that my children were being taught, I, I, I couldn't do it. <laughs> I was confused. We know people learn in different ways, and we need to give people the tools and the independence to, to pursue those different ways, and then to really celebrate, publicize what works and why it works. He isn't famous at least not outside of our little town. So it might be easy for him to think himself a failure. And he would be wrong. Because I think he's achieved a success far beyond riches and fame. Look around you. There is not a life in this room that you have not touched. And each one of us is a better person because of you. We are your symphony, Mr. Holland. We are the melodies and the notes of your opus, and we are the music of your life. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Ken Wong, and when I posted a tribute to him on LinkedIn, over 50,000 people liked it. That's the kind of impact he's had on students across Canada and around the world. Mitch Joel was on my show recently, and you made a comment about his expression, and not or. I would love your take on it. I heard this uh, in a a talk that Mitch gave. It it struck me as the right way to approach it, because if you think about it, let's suppose we have two technologies, an old one and a new one. Is it a matter of choosing the old one or, or the new one? Or could we have a world in which we take the best of each, where we, you know, do let the old technology do what it does well, and what it doesn't do well, we supplement that with the new technology. Uh, and so we have this more inclusive world. Uh, I had four cultures that contributed to my ethnicity. Each one brought something a little bit different to the party. You know, the, the Chinese brought, a, I guess, a sense of, pre, uh, of precision. Uh, the French, a sense of emotion and affection. Uh, the British, the, the stiff upper lip. Uh, and the Irish... Uh, I guess the love of partying. I don't know. <laughs> you know, but, but it was an and, yeah. not an That's or. That's terrific. Now, it would be wrong of me if I didn't bring this interview back to marketing because you do spend a lot of time in your world. 
Ten years ago, I sold my agencies because the world had shifted from marketers having budgets to spend, which freed up the opportunity to experiment and test and their intuition. And we were all about big ideas that work to almost overnight. They had to invest those budgets. They had to look for a return. They, they started asking questions. How much does it cost? Will it work? What if it doesn't work? And it really, to me, created a climate of I'd rather do nothing and not fail than try something and fail. Is that a fair assessment? Did you see the same thing from your end or was it just an entrepreneur wondering why business has changed so quickly? There's a couple of reasons why you saw what you saw. Uh, part of it was just the, the stage that our craft was at. Uh, you know, in the earlier days, we were building brands. We, we didn't have an existing brand per se. We were building them and finding out what they were about. And over time, of course, we made investments in those brands because a big part of being a brand is this platform of consistency. The customer knows what they're going to get each and every time guaranteed. But once you establish that brand position, you're kind of reluctant to toy with it too much. And so when your agency comes to you with creative, your first thought is, how does it build on the existing brand that we have? And, you know, and think about diminishing returns. Do we, when we've already got, say, a 35% market share, how risky are we prepared to get in order to pick up the, you know, the one to 2% more that might be available to us? Where I think, uh, our, our, our real need for creativity comes in, uh, is in two places. What we would call customer activation. Now, what's going to move me today? Without regard for whether or not it builds on the brand, what's going to motivate me to give your brand trial? Because brand building is really based on the notion, try it, you'll like it. But if I can't get you to try it, how can I get you to like it? How can I get you to be loyal? And, and that's where creativity comes in. Uh, analytics may tell you where to focus, but it can't tell you how to get there. And the other part is startups. You know, startups have a capability but they're looking for the right way to apply that capability and express that capability. And that's why so many startups, they have to pivot once or twice before they come fully to market. That's where marketing, our intuition, our observation, our, our common sense, not fancy models, you know, just our ability to think through the problem critically. That's where we can really make a huge contribution. Call it the marketing of innovation. Whether that innovation is a product, a service, or even a thought or philosophy. You know, Ken, I always end my episode with my three lessons learned about my guests. And the first one, because I've known you for so long, and there truly is so much love attached to Ken Wong as an individual and as a professor. And I think it has a lot to do with a very sad time in your life when you lost your little brother and you saw your parents cry for the first time, and you, and you realized they were fragile, they were human. That had an incredible impact on how much you give to people, invite people into your office, talk about problems, as opposed to just go through the transaction to teaching. The second one, which is such an incredible lesson that you were privileged to have, is 365 days a year, we had a family board meeting, which was talking about the business around the table. And a great lesson in life, because now when I look around dinner tables, I often see people on screens, both parents and children. And just the conversations, or when you're, you came home from university and your dad said, let's unpack what you learned and then created immediate metaphors to some of the things that he was doing building his business and just you realizing at the same time that I'm not just teaching stuff. This gets manifested into physicality. 
And the last one is just a lesson for all of us out there in this noisy, loud world. Try it. Don't always worry about boiling the ocean. Just worry about activation. Get somebody to listen to your idea. Get someone to sample your product. Try your service. Get someone to just talk about your resume as opposed to thinking that Rome was built in a day. And I think by applying that simple philosophy of one step forward, there's so much that we can all benefit from. Ken Wong, I am so honored to know you as a friend and so proud that you were part of uh, Chatter That Matters. Well, thank you, Tony. And, and let me say uh, to your second point, chatter does matter. It matters a great deal. And uh, the kind of chatter that you're generating through this program, the focus on small business, the focus on inclusion, uh, the focus on, on what makes the human animal human and, and, and therefore wonderful. Uh, that matters. It matters a lot. And uh, the words... They'll have legs, trust me. Joining me now is Shannon Cole, Vice President of Brand Marketing at RBC. If you listen to the Christine Sinclair episode, you'll learn that Shannon is not just an, an incredible marketer. She actually played soccer with Christine at the varsity level. She's just uh, all around talent. So Shannon, thanks for uh, joining me again. Thanks, Tony. So Ken Wong has devoted his life to teaching. His sweet spot has been marketing. He's on his way out of Queens, but keeps reminding us he's not retiring. He's just moving on to other passions. But Marketing is your sweet spot, and a lot of my listeners are aspiring entrepreneurs, small business owners, or people that just want to advance their career. So first thing I want to tap into your brain is, what is marketing, and why is it important for an organization as they're trying to live their dreams? At RBC, part of what we view as marketing is kind of an art, external articulation of who we are as a as a brand and, and as a company. And so we like to show up in ways that help showcase our commitment to the community, showcase our, our commitment to our clients that we serve. And it's a nice way to be able to also showcase products and services that we feel are head and shoulders above uh, our competitors. And when you talk about, you know, your clients, there's so much that you do, like discover and learn, uh, training ground with the Olympians we talked about in the other show, the work you're doing with TIFF and the arts. It's not clients. Centric. It's kind of sort of opens the door saying whether you bank with us or anyone else, here's the things that might be of value to you. How do you justify that return on investment, knowing that you might be just inspiring and educating people that would never do business with you? You know, as a large organization, certainly one of the largest in this country and one of the largest banks globally, I think we have a responsibility and a commitment, as I said, to make the the communities we serve and the clients that we serve better in different areas that we operate. So I think that that's kind of an overarching commitment that we have, and it comes across in, in different articulations, but it, it certainly all stems back to that kind of corporate promise that we have and purpose as to why we exist. Do you think it's important that both individuals and any size business has that higher purpose, that they're, they're kind of aiming for something where... They're bringing value, and because they're bringing value, hopefully they'll get it. The payback will be that loyalty or attracting the right customers or the right employees. I mean, that's certainly where we believe. I, I can't speak for every organization out there, but what we can see, and especially it's interesting in times of uncertainty or economic hardship, I think there is a flight to trust and there is a flight to certainty and to brands that you recognize and you believe in. If you can lay that foundation and actually put your money where your mouth is and show that you've earned that trust and you, you deserve it, 
that's where the the best brands seem to emerge, right? Especially in times where things feel uncertain or they might feel scary. RBC's launched a new platform called Ideas Happen Here. And I know that it's more than a 30 second ad, that, that it is entirely a platform, but what are you hoping you stand on? What are you hoping the consumer joins you with on this sort of uh, messaging? I think the hope there is this, like Ideas Happen Here is essentially our way of saying, RBC is a place where we can help make ideas happen. That can be yours as the consumer, that can be ours as your trusted advisor, or some combination of the two. Um, it's not a flight of fancy. It's not just uh, imagination without action. It's a place where we can actually help you. And that could be in you know, milestones in your own personal or professional life. Um, it could be something, a cause close to you or your community. Um, but this is the place where we believe we can help you do that. Shannon, Cole, the second time you've been on the show, both times you've impressed. I really appreciate you taking the time. Have a wonderful holiday. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.